Hey folks, this is Screen Watching. It's our weekly discussion about the things what we've been watching on the screen. My name is Dan Barrett, joined by Simon Foster. Simon, big week on the show. It's a little bit crazy this week, Dan Barrett. Hello to you and hello to all our listeners far and wide. There are a lot of new movies and there are some really interesting television properties that we have to get through. This is a very hectic week. Yeah, we just got into a little bit of a... No, I don't think tiff is a strong word, but a, a bit of a verbal tete-a-tete over the fact I had Mrs. My- the marvellous Mrs. Maisel on our spreadsheet, <laughs> emphasis on the word marvellous. And you're like, did we not talk about that last week? And I'm like, Simon, we didn't talk about it last week because there was an embargo that stopped us being able to talk about it in advance. It's all over your, your, it's all over your always be watching a, a newsletter. It's, you love Mrs. Maisel. I'm, I'm astounded. I can't wait to hear your review because I know you're just going to be effusive about it. Yeah, you were critical. You're like, Dan, you're on the payroll. And it's like, yes, I'm on Big Maisel. Maisel Dollars. This is not like TV only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. The facts you need to know for this week's show are this. One, it's a podcast called Screen Watching. Two, it's hosted by Dan Barrett. Three, it's co-hosted, sub-hosted by Simon Foster. Four, I've just been out for a very long walk and I'm a little bit dehydrated. Five, there's a lot of big things we're talking about this week. We've got one of the biggest movies of the week. Mm. Uh, (laughs) Simon, what are you talking about? Let's kick us off. What, What are your big four titles this week? Well, look, if we wanted to talk big video game movies, we've got Uncharted. If we wanted to talk big new Australian indie film, we've got A Stitch in Time. We're going to go to the small screen for my next review, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from Netflix. And we also have, if you only see one Celine Dion biopic this year, see Aileen. I've got so much to say, so much to say. Look, I mean, I'd have a lot to say, none of it polite. But first, I'm going to talk about some TV reviews I've got. As we mentioned, there's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, one of the biggest shows in streaming. Season Here 4 we kicked go. off yesterday. I'm going to talk <laughs> with great reverence and awe and just passion for that in just a short while. But also I'm going to be talking about God. the brand new Apple TV Plus series Severance, which is a conversation you need to stick around for. And also there is a movie that Steven Soderbergh, big time filmmaker Steven Soderbergh, made for a streaming outlet in the US called HBO Max. We've got it here on Binge. It's called Kimmy. And I'm going to take a bit of a deep dive into that feature film. But Simon, why the heck are we dilly-dallying with intros when we could just be here eating the whole enchilada? <laughs> Let's throw the corn chips away. Let's get deep into the reviews. It stinks. Okay, I think the only place to start is with Tim Holland. Tim Holland? Tom Holland. Superstar. <laughs> Household name, Tom Holland, with a little film called Uncharted. The sound clip's coming, Simon, I promise. Watch this. Yeah, press that button. Everything in here. Why the map? This path Ferdinand Magellan took to sail around the world. You know your history. It's the biggest treasure that's never been found. Short clip. Let's go. So I don't claim to be a gamer at all. I vaguely knew Uncharted was a successful video game series and that fans have been frothing at the mouth over a big screen reworking of the adventures of of petty crim Nathan Drake and his recruiter, treasure hunter Victor Sully Sullivan. I do know that they haven't been pining for this film, that's fair to say. It's been 20 years since Drake... 
Spidey himself, Tom Holland, has seen his older brother Sam. So when Sully, played by the aforementioned Mr. Wahlberg, promises both a huge payday and some hope for the bros to reunite, Drake is all in. Two bejeweled amulets are the keys to a series of adventures. First in the tunnels below San Sebastian, where they are joined by fellow adventurer Chloe Frazier, played by Sophia Ali. Then to the tropical island resting place of the bounty they seek, all this while dodging ruthless billionaire Santiago Moncado, played by Antonio Banderas, and the blade-wielding Braddock, Tati Gabriel. Now, Wikipedia, my go-to source for all information, describes the gameplay as, quote, jumping, swimming, climbing, swinging from ropes, shooting, combat, puzzle-solving, driving, boat-riding, and other acrobatic actions. Now, in that regard, the film has people doing all those things, but there is little connective tissue between the characters and their actions. Like the game, it feels like Drake and Sully just have to go through this bit to get to that bit. And both Holland and Wahlberg are repeatedly made to look not quite the action film buddies they were paid to be. An obvious template um, is being employed here to transfer the platform game format into a movie, or at least back into a movie. The game was apparently a riff on globe-hopping adventures like Raiders of the Lost Ark and National Treasure. That partially explains the copy of a copy dullness, a film so relentlessly derivative, so cut from the the shop-worn tatty cloth of dozens of better films, it never finds its own reason for being. Instead, it just creaks and groans towards its CGI cartoon conclusion. Now, ultimately, I could care less about this plotting dirge of a film, but I do want to point out the most dispiriting thing about this whole mess. Every villain that is trying to derail our white guy heroes is either A, a woman, and or be a quote-unquote foreigner. It is wildly ironic that the only references to the action-adventure films of the past that Uncharted mimics with any skill are the ugliest, most outdated elements. This has already gone to the top of uh, my worst film of the year. Okay, I mean, worst film of the year, we're like five, six weeks in, so like, let's not be giving the trophies away too much here. It's a start. It's a good start. I didn't hate this movie anywhere near as much as you did. I don't think it's particularly great, but the thing that I was, I really couldn't get away from while watching is how much a kick out of this I would have gotten if I was a 10 to 12 year old me. Like this is exactly what I would have enjoyed. It was dumb, silly, it's sort of puzzle type things. I think I would have gone along for the roller coaster that this ride is. The problem is I'm not a 10 or 12 year old and I think I've done a little bit more growth since then. Not a lot of growth, but a little bit. (laughs) And so when I actually come to watching this, like the film didn't really entertain me in the ways that I would have liked, but I went in there expecting so much worse. Ultimately, it's getting away from the video game trappings of this, and it's a bit hard to do that because so much of the structure and form of this movie is leaning into video game uh, mechanisms is probably the way to yep. really phrase it. Uh, so it leans into that in a really big way. But if we can try to get away from that, I sort of looked at this as being pretty much on par with any of the sort of very shallow big blockbusters, the likes of which we've seen from people like The Rock over the last five to 10 years. And so I started thinking about this in terms of a rock metric. Okay, and when I think about The Rock, I think about films like, um, what was the recent, uh, Jungle Boat, Jungle Cruise? Jungle Cruise, yep. Yep, so we'll think about Jungle Cruise. Also, what was the one he shot in Brisbane, Australia that was, like an end of the world is sort of a thing. What was going on there? Yeah, he did San, uh, was a skyscraper, San, San Andreas. Andreas. Yeah, San um, Andreas is what yeah. I had in mind. So I was thinking about those two as my template for like what a rock movie is. And is this any worse than any of those movies? I'd say that no, I think it's actually quite a bit better than those movies. I think that as lifeless as this is, I still found a little bit more um, 
I wouldn't say joy, that's not the word I want to use, but a little bit more engagement, I think, in a movie than I experienced from those movies. Okay, so like, as, are they better than a movie starring The Rock? Yes. Is this a good movie? No. And that's basically where I kind of found myself lying with. There's no reason to go any sort of deeper into it, but I do have a question, which will lead into our mm. middle bit in a moment, which is, who is this movie for exactly? Like, why did they make this movie? So... One, obviously, it's IP, and they're trying to mine as much IP as you can from around the world, and video games are still largely untapped, and we're going to talk about video game movies later in a way that's a bit different than I think people are expecting right now. But video game movies are being mined, but who is this for? Because I spoke to some people that really like the Uncharted games during the week, and the one consistent thing I heard from all of them was, yeah, I don't know I'm going to go and see this, and the reason they cited was Tom Holland doesn't seem like the right lead for the film, uh, for the film, considering the characters that they've come along with. And I think that's a fair enough point. If you look at mm-hmm. the video game itself, the protagonist is a little bit sort of older and a bit sort of more, uh, I guess, mature in terms of his manliness. Whereas yep. Tom Holland looks like they've definitely, he's sort of so aged up a little bit in the way that he behaves and mannerisms in this. And I think that's a very conscious sort of point, but he still doesn't really feel like a mature man. He kind of feels like a sort of bit of a mature sort of 22 year old, even though apparently he's 25. Well, I, I should point out that, that Mark Wahlberg has been attached to this project for about a decade. And he was yeah. in the, he was going to be cast as the, the young man when it came around, but he's young now, him makes sense. Uh, outgrowing that. Yeah, exactly. He would have made sense. So what this feels like to me is that it is um, a cookie cutter. Let's make a certain uh, profit margin quarterly projection. Um, To do that, we need Tom Holland in a part that doesn't suit him. We need um, big splashy special effects. We need a director who we can boss around. Ruben Fleischer has come on board. There is no directorial style or flourish with this film. Um, Unlike, I think, San Andreas, uh, unlike San Andreas or unlike um well not so much skyscraper it was a terrible film as well but um (laughs) this one this one looks and feels very much as if it's a a, a two-dimensional film and it is that of course but it feels like there's no directorial stamp on any of the action sequences this is about as generic and as mindless an action film as i've seen in many many years and when you start talking about the films that it copies the national treasures and those sort of things they're not classics but at least they set a certain standard in creating on-screen tension this is just a monotonous drone of a film that never finds any any sort of heart or soul or momentum um, until it just collapses into a big, loud, derivative CGI mess at the end. Well, I mean, that's the thing that I sort of wanted to get to with the idea of who is this for, because clearly it's not after video game fans, and I do wonder whether video game fans even want to turn out for movies. Like, I, I don't know if the two are necessarily as complementary as Hollywood seems to think that they are. But then, as you said, like this is very much something that feels like a bit of a copy of a copy of previous films. So it's not really necessarily for a audience that have some sort of level of film literacy. And I'm not necessarily saying that people have to be scholars of film to be able to appreciate the greatness of Uncharted. But like, they're certainly not going for that level. But like, even my mum would sit there and go, oh, this kind of feels like that other movie. Like people have seen movies before and so they've got literacy around that. So like, it's not even really for that. But like the Uncharted games are games which have kind of ripped off big screen, uh, swashbuckling, like treasure hunting movies and adapted it for a game. So like, this is obviously going to be a copy of a copy of a copy. So who is this for? I don't really understand. I don't think they really came up with a good um, rationale for it. And you mentioned Ruben Fleischer. I actually think this does look like a Ruben Fleischer movie. So I mostly know him for the um, Zombieland movies. 
And this actually mm-hmm. looks very much visually on par with Zombieland. Like you can actually oh, see. I- no, like visually, like he's not an exciting director, but you can see the way that he holds a camera. Like this is very clearly a Ruben Fleischer movie. So I yeah. don't think that it's without a directorial sort of view, but I'm just saying it's not the most exciting of directors that we're looking at here. But yeah, yeah I'm, I think excellent. you're being too harsh on a movie, but you're also not wrong in all the things that you say. There you go. All right, so let's move on to uh, what uh, I think is one of the most interesting shows of the year, Severance, which is on Apple TV. And look, Simon, this is the bit where, look, I'm just clearly not prepared. I had tabs open earlier. I was ready to go for it. We discussed You have things. one job. Well, you've got about four. <laughs> oh, look, do I even have that many jobs? I've got like one and a half jobs. How about we talk about severance? And to do that, let's play a clip. I give consent for the Lumen Corporation. And it's a good corporation. To sever my memories between my work life. Oh, and my personal life. I acknowledge that once the procedure is complete, I will be unable to access my personal memories whilst on Lumen's severed floor. Okay, Simon, I'm going to have to disappear from the podcast for like three seconds. One sec. And that's Dan, who's just disappeared from the podcast. He'll be back soon to talk about Severance, the new Apple TV show uh, directed and conceived by Ben Stiller and starring Adam Scott. A great cast, John Turturro, Christopher Walken. Hey, 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 let's not uh, do the review while I'm away. You hold tight. I was stretching. That's stretching. No, that's not stretching. That's just eating my lunch. I could have talked about Uncharted. I could have done that, but I didn't. I go, I'm waiting. Go, afterwards. talk, talk. Good grief. Okay, here's a proper review from... Jeez, oh, I'm outraged. How do you maintain a work-life balance? This has been a question that many of us have grappled with over the last two years while working from home during the pandemic. There's a lot more out-of-hours work happening, expectations of presenteeism higher than ever before, fewer sick days taken, and a general sense of always being available. After all, without a commute to the office, working is only a power button or, worse yet, a glance at your phone away. New Apple TV Plus series Severance takes that idea and runs with it. It proposes a world where some workers engage in the most extreme force of establishing a work-life balance. They literally sever their minds in two. A person can leave home in the morning, but when they get home at night, they have no memory at all of what they did during the day. All memories of the workday vanish. Now, there's two ways to consider this premise. The first would be the old-school TV way of dealing with it. A half-hour comedy where not remembering your workday leads to all sorts of crazy shenanigans. Severance, however, leans heavily into prestige streaming TV possibilities with it. It takes the concept and runs it into a weird horror funhouse of possibility. Only it strips out the fun as you, the audience, are left to grapple with not just the tangible ramifications of what's going on here, but also the philosophical nightmare that it yields. The version of you that gets to work each day and comes home with no memory of the worksheets or Terry from HR, that person is living a great life. But the version of you who's at work all day, every day with no reprieve from that, that's sentencing a person to hell. Obviously, I'm not referring to my own workplace. That place is an absolute dream to experience day in, day out. I'm talking about the other workplace. (laughs) And look, this is what Severance as a show is exploring. Adam Scott plays Mark. He's a member of a four-person team who signed up for this kind of workplace at Lumen Industries, which is seemingly a stand-in for companies like Amazon, Alphabet, Berkshire Hathaway. They may as well just call it Viridian Dynamics. Now, only making the situation stranger, the work they're doing is difficult to explain and comprehend, to the point where even the team don't understand exactly what they're doing all day at their computer terminals. It has something to do with data recontextualized in a minesweeper sort of an interface. There seems to be a logic to it, maybe, probably. Now, out of work, you've got Mark who's very happy with his decision to break away from that part of his day. 
In the first two episodes, you'll see him brush away the ethical issues of the procedure with his friends at a dinner party. But you'll also see him getting very hostile at protesters on the street who are against it. Within the workplace, however, you start to really get a sense as to the horrendous practices that result from this kind of a mind fracture. For starters, staff in the workplace don't know what's taking place outside in the real world. That left to devise theories. Some are concerned about a possible post-apocalypse. After all, why else would someone want to do what they're doing, splitting their mind in this kind of a manner? Now, with staff from prevented even leaving the building, they're prevented from having notes to themselves, employees can't express jobs dissatisfaction or poor working conditions. This means that people are quite literally working the same dead-end job for years and years and years. It also impacts on workplace friendships, which are even more artificial than those in reality. After all, it's not like anyone's catching up for after-work beers or making genuine connections. Severance makes its message very clear. The best interests of the employee and that of the company that they work for very rarely align. This is a series from writer-creator Dan Erickson and brought to the screen by director Ben Stiller, who does a great job extracting the dark horror that comes from the existentialist dread that exists within an office environment. At first, the show seems like an odd fit for Stiller, but if you can imagine the director of Cable Guy going off to do his own version of Office Space, suddenly it makes a whole lot more sense. Severance does a great job at balancing the broad idea of the concept and the real-world impact it would have on a person's life and psyche. While the show's broadly smart and thought-provoking TV, it will have you thinking about making... It'll have you thinking as much about your own work experience as much as the soulless daily grind depicted in the show. The thing is, the extremity of the show's premise works against it in a certain degree. The bizarre odyssey of the work conducted in the office at times overburdens the premise of the show. And as the premise of the show, Severance is a great idea for a show, but as is so often the case, I'm left wondering whether something so high concept would have been better served as a movie. Two episodes into this, I feel like I get the point. Now it's just an exercise in sitting through the additional seven episodes of narrative. Great review, mate. Um, I am four episodes into this as well. I am in love with this show. I'm in love with the. Um, you, you brought a very philosophical sort of study of the of the show and and its its meaning. Uh, I am in love with the the texture of it and the style of the show. I think Ben Stiller, given this sort of free range, shows what a a real vision he can have for these kind of dark stories. And you you brought up Cable Guy. He made another film called Envy, which you know the material wasn't there, but he co-starred with Jack Black in that, and it was a a similar sort of dark, tortured character study that that Severance is. Um, uh, Adam Scott is great in this. I think he brings so much to it. Um, it's interesting that you say this might have worked better at a, as a movie. I think the um, fairly leisurely way that some of the detail is unfolding in this and the impact it has when it does unfold, I, I actually think suits an episodic structure so, more, uh, more so than a movie. Although, having said that, and I hope one day they do create a, a big screen version of Severance. Well, I mean, I, I don't really understand why you do that after you've already done the series, but, you know, heaven forbid. I mean, making a remake, like, who would even think about such an idea these days? A remake, <laughs> Simon. Okay, but look, I mean, the reason why I think it makes more sense as a movie than a TV show is that, yes, there's a very leisurely place, pace to the way that this is going out, and that absolutely feeds into the idea of work as a monotonous place that you keep on turning up to day in, day out, and it fits into that. So, like, the idea of this meets the idea of an episodic like situation but the thing is that every episode like most workplaces works to be exactly the same thing because most people go to work and do the same thing day in day out and people have rhythms and patterns so i'm not sure that an episode necessarily serves severance particularly well in regards to that aspect but i can certainly see why one would go in that direction 
But the thing with the show is that it's got this really broad concept of not only is it a strange situation these workers have engaged in to separate their minds as they work into this workplace, but the work itself that they're doing is so far removed from the sort of work that people are actually doing in workplaces that it just kind of feels like the show isn't necessarily trying to talk about an average workplace and the average experience of going to work. It's just being very specific about this situation. And it sort of strips it away from that day-to-day mundanity of how we're living our lives. And it's really the day-to-day mundanity of how these very specific people are living a very specific type of work day. And so for, yeah, with that I in know. mind, I, think I don't know that it actually stretches out into a series as well as I think that we get the idea. And so I think that maybe extra episodes are kind of just sort of hammering us over the head with it rather than being a tight, concise story in itself. I think it serves the same um, sort of impact and the same, uh, um, I guess, thematic establishing the themes of the show as the opening scenes of Joe versus the Volcano did when Tom Hanks was in the <laughs> cellar with Dan Hedaya and with Meg Ryan. Great um, comparison. I th- yeah, I think there's a I think there's a similarity there. I think that mundanity about which you speak is is recognisable even in this very sort of fantasy world structure, and that sense of familiarity is a bit skewy in that they work within this building that is so um, fragmented. You've got to walk down these vast corridors, which lends itself beautifully to some of the cinematography in this in this series. These vast corridors to stumble into Christopher Walken in the O and D section, and 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 Patricia Arquette's office, which is miles away. So look, I, I, it's there's a touch of Brazil about this. Um, about this concept and and I'm totally hooked as, as I say I'm four episodes in and and um, eager to see the rest so that's on Apple TV at the moment I guess a thumbs up from you oh yeah no I'm very enthusiastic about it but like you mentioned Brazil like this could be a Brazil for a modern era but it never yeah. will be because in this day and age of content glut of just too much TV like it's just it's going to be watched it's going to be appreciated but i doubt it'll ever be rewatched in the way that i think brazil is because it's a shorter condensed film and that's where i think film definitely has a strength over tv which is that rewatchability aspect there's the potential for a movies become a classic in a way that a tv show as good as the show is as much as one may love it i don't think it never really received that same stature in one's psyche and one's heart and it maintains we should point out it maintains you know, there's a couple of exceptions to the rule, but Apple TV's very high production qualities that they, they bring to their series as well. Gorgeous-looking show. Gorgeous-looking show. I got to have a look at the Celine Dion thinly-veiled biopic called Eileen. Celine, c'est vraiment toi qui chante là-dessus? Eileen. Fallait pas commencer m'attirer don't dance i want to vomit right now go on <laughs> the musical biopic um it's my least favorite genre many are fine films but they're just the greatest hits collection in which actors get to work through emotional highs and lows that any respectable fan knows about anyway and that's probably why oscar often notices these performances the exception that proves the rule for me and this is controversial was bohemian rhapsody which put on a show and took the piss all the while reaffirming the belief that after reconciling with his sexuality it must have been friggin awesome to have been freddie mercury (laughs) that's a (laughs) fact Um, and that's 
kind of why I liked Aileen so much. This is a very thinly veiled account of the life of eccentric songstress Celine Dion, a spectacularly talented performer and bewilderingly peculiar personality, both on screen and off. And all the shades of Celine are captured in the lead performance of Valérie Le Mercier, the 57-year-old French actress who wrote, directed and stars as the title character from the age of 12 as a preteen growing up poor in Canada to the Las Vegas icon that Celine is today. Yeah, you heard right. The 57-year-old Valérie Le Mercier plays the 12-year-old Aileen. The production uses technology like Scorsese did in The Irishman or, or what's his name, Fincher did in Benjamin Button. Um to put the actresses, the adult actresses feature on a little girl's body and we watch absolutely spell down not only as Aileen becomes a global singing superstar but as the rest of her body catches up with her adult face. Remember that bizarre moment in the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers when the homeless guy falls asleep with his dog and they wake up mashed together, his face on the dog's body? Well, Aileen stretches that moment into about 40 minutes. Believe me, you come away from this film and not quite sure what you're watching. Like Bohemian Rhapsody, La Mercier's film is both part conventional biopic, part camp love letter, filmed in a style that reaffirms the image that the artist has carefully constructed of herself. It is a, a singularly fearless vision from La Mercier, the kind that finds both adoring admirers and scathing detractors, whether bound for awards glory, which it isn't, or midnight movie cultum, which it probably is, I found Aileen to be an absolute hoot. I'm desperate to do a double feature of this and Dear Evan Hansen based on what you've said. <laughs> That's that's a great night at the movies. <laughs> it's suddenly a night at the movies. <laughs> this is in uh, it's in limited release around town. Um, the 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 main festivals didn't want to play it for some unfathomable reason. The French festival passed on it, and uh, Sydney and Melbourne wouldn't play it. But man, you've never seen anything like Aileen, and it's definitely worth checking out just for uh, the, the the oddity that it really is. Look, I mean, that sounds like something pretty special. Uh, speaking of the word special, let's use it in a genuine sense of the term. Here's Marvel's Mrs. Maisel, season four. Mrs. Maisel! Once in a lifetime! We're going out. Where? When I can explore a new ending. Where you going? Grab a hat. Do not change your wardrobe. It's fine. Just a hat. It's never just a hat. Simon, it's never <laughs> just a hat. I think that's important for just life advice, just generally. It's true. So picking up where season three left us, the big question on your mind as you may press play on season four will be, what the hell happened in season three? Do you remember? The last season of the show debuted in December 2019. That was a whole pandemic ago. I've had three jobs since then, had a child, moved into state. There's a lot of time that's passed. And that's the cloud that overwhelms the first episode back. So much of your time will be spent trying to recall what the various plot strands are of the series. Creator Amy Sherman Palladino writes and directs the return episode, and she'll make it easy enough for you to be able to catch up. When I say she will, I mean she does. Like, I've seen it. Like, it's true. Uh, you'll be confused by some of the elements. Uh, do you remember that Joel's now running a nightclub in Chinatown above an illegal gambling hall? I didn't. FYI, Joel's the ex-husband, which you may have forgotten. Uh, you've also got manager Susie, who's lost most of Midge Maisel's money. I don't remember the particulars of that. I think gambling was involved. But in this episode, she's got a plan to get Maisel her money back by way of an insurance uh, scheme that's owed through burning down her mother's home last season. Yeah, that's a thing that I sort of recall happened, maybe. Um, last season, so much of it was based around the rise of Maisel's career. After a setback as an opening act for heritage comedy act Sophie Lennon on a European tour in season two, Midge found success out on the road traveling with the musical act Shy Baldwin throughout season three. 
only to flame out once at sorry, only to flame out once again at the end of the season as she let her loose lips reveal a little bit too much about Shy Baldwin and his sexual preferences in front of a large audience. Now, frustratingly, the show presents her outing of a man on stage at the end of the 1950s as not being that big a deal and that she did nothing wrong when in fact she did something terribly wrong and the show never takes the time to acknowledge that. The first episode back this season, it establishes a new status quo for the series, which highlights that there's been a much larger arc at play throughout the entire series as a whole. Lenny Bruce, who's popped in and out of the show as a mentor for Maisel since the first episode, sorry, Lenny Bruce has popped in and out of the show as a mentor since the first episode, but it's only now with episode four, uh, with season four that his value and his presence in the show really comes to the forefront. Maisel, having been dumped by Shy Baldwin's tour for speaking her mind, decides now to go full Lenny Bruce and pivot her act into complete honesty, saying anything that's on her mind. And look, I'm going to be frank, I'm a huge fan of Amy Sherman Palladino, but I hit play out of this, on this out of more of a feeling of obligation than I did excitement. There's a combination of having been away from the show for so long, and that also, while I quite like the show, my connection to it simply isn't as strong as with her previous shows, Gilmore Girls, and especially Bunheads. But I'm really glad that I did press play. This is a bold, ambitious comedy, and the season looks like it's set to be creatively bolder than it has been in previous seasons. And on that, I want to leave you with two bits of advice. One, the show is going out weekly in two episode chunks, rather than the previous seasons that release all the full season at once. This gives you plenty of time to go and watch the season three finale before pressing play on season four. I think you'll be really glad that you did. Two, my second bit of advice is to ignore my first bit of advice. You're really not doing anything of consequence. You know it, I know it. Why not go back and just rewatch the whole show from the start before you watch season four? You'll get through it all in about two, three, four weeks tops. You'll be caught up mid-season and you'll be able to keep up with the weekly rollout of this season. It feels to me like the show is starting to tip its hand a little bit in terms of the series long arc for Maisel and how it's tied to her relationship with Lenny Bruce, who's been an instrumental figure in the show since the very beginning of episode one. I can't help but the payoff for this will be so much stronger the more intimate you are with the show. Maisel season four, if you haven't been watching the show, don't jump in on season four. That's ridiculous and nobody does that in TV anymore anyway. But fans of the show will be very happy to be back in the world of Maisel. I was happy to be back in the world of Maisel and I'm very much enjoying going back and rewatching all the previous seasons before I hit play on the next episode because I think that's just a smart thing to do and I know I'm going to have a great time doing it. You're talking to me, aren't you? You want me to go and back all, watch all first three seasons. I've got you in one ear. I've got my wife in the other saying how much I love this show and I've never seen an episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So, you know what? Maybe I will. Maybe I'll go back and watch the first three seasons and then come to season four fresh and I might become a, a, a Maisel file as, as you and, and my better half is. So, great review. I mean, you talk it up and it's one award, so... There's a lot to recommend The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Look, the thing with Maisel and Gilmore Girls and Bunheads is that this is almost a singular vision in that you've got Amy Sherman Palladino as showrunner and through her previous series and now, she works very much in lockstep with her husband, Daniel Palladino. And the two of them have a lot of very shared interests. Dan Palladino has maybe a bit more of a taste of the absurd and sort of leans into pop culture a little bit more than Amy does, but... She's just as guilty of that as well. And I've never seen a... Uh, worth keeping in mind with Maisel, pretty much the way they structure it is that 
Amy Sherman Palladino writes and directs every episode of the show, except the episodes that she doesn't write and direct, Dan Palladino writes and directs all those episodes. So this is a very singular vision from both a writing and directorial standpoint shared across these two creators, of whom uh, probably is in lockstep as the Coen brothers ever were, I guess is maybe the only point of comparison I could really use here. Uh, but like this is their vision and... On Gilmore Girls, they had different writers and different directors. On Bunheads, they started to get more into this idea of the two of them sort of just working together. But Maisel is the first series where it really is a pure creative vision. And that's exciting for that. Like, they've been given the money that they've got on the show. Simon, I know you haven't watched the show. This is a glorious, big-budget-looking show that is set in the 50s and has all the accoutrements to, like, really sort of back that up. Not only is set dressing, like, authentic to, you know, the era, but there's scenes, Simon, where they walk out on the street and the biggest-budget movies you've seen where you see, like, all the old-timey cars and stuff, like, that is very much on display here for scenes that take no more than, like, one or two seconds. You don't have big crane shots showing off this distance. This is just background detail they have the money to be able to drop into it it's an incredible production and even if you don't jive on the vibe of the creators and they're very specific there's a good chance you probably won't but even if you don't vibe on that like at least sort of taking the production quality of this because it is incredible tv jive on the vibe you heard it here first uh so season four is on amazon are all the seasons on amazon oh yeah all right, okay. That's how so I've got to work. go back and watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. When I'm not doing that, I'll be re-watching a new Australian indie called A Stitch in Time. I have been thinking of making dresses again and selling them at the markets. You should. You don't think that's a silly idea? Of course not. I don't know why you ever stopped in the first place. I fell in love. The terrific Maggie Blinko is Lieber, a Holocaust survivor who has put her own dreams aside for 50-odd years to support her musician husband, Duncan, played by Aussie music legend Glenn Shorrock, no less. Uh, But when his dwindling confidence and state of mind becomes outwardly abusive, Lieber says that's enough, and she decides to reset her life, returning to her love for dressmaking and befriending a young Chinese man, Hamish, played by Hao Jandu, who helps her regain her footing in the big new world. Now, Rarely do mature age characters get the screen time or the insight that first-time director Sasha Haddon affords Lieber and his leading lady. The story speaks to the sense of community. Those already living on the fringe of society need to self-fulfill, I guess, in order to survive. This one's shot by Donald McAlpine, the great cinematographer who did Breaker Morant and Predator and Moulin Rouge. It's a low-budget work, but it looks uh, uh, crisp and natural and very cinematic. It's polished with the experience and skill of uh, the producing great Sue Millican. She did Odd Angry shot and ladies in black um it's a sweet sometimes sad ultimately uplifting story of the displaced and the disenfranchised finding their own place in the world it's in 81 cinemas around australia at the moment do seek out a stitch in time um rarely has there been a, a an aussie film made on such a small scale but done with such honesty and integrity yeah uh i didn't realize it was glenn shark that's yeah makes a lot of sense one of me. this one of the sweetest men in real life i think one of the last concerts i went to was a a small gig he did up on the central coast here in new south wales at a place called lazotte's and he hung around and he chatted and he talked to all his fans who turned up he plays a bit of a dick in this movie he's a bit blue in the mouth and his his dwindling mind means that he does some nasty things but um he's he's pretty terrific he might have a late sort of career as a character actor yeah 
Cool. Uh, Simon, let's move on to a movie that I know that you got a kick out of just as much as I did. It's the new Steven Soderbergh film called Kimmy. I'm a voice stream interpreter. I may have heard a crime on one of the streams. The devices pick up lots of things. Just mark this degraded audio and delete it. I am not capable and you know it. I think a woman might need help. How do I find out who she is? You need a Okay, a filmmaking can go a long way to giving an audience exactly what they want. Steven Soderbergh has given us a tight and lean thriller, the sort of film that is once a staple of our movie diets and very much the sort of film that strangely doesn't seem to get made a whole lot more anymore for some inexplicable reason. Here we've got Zoe Kravitz playing a woman who works for a technology company that sells a conversational speaker called Kimmy, just like a Google Home speaker or Amazon's Alexa. Sorry, it is just like, sorry, I need to learn how to actually write, Simon. This is a real problem for me or at least learn how to read words which I put on a screen. So Kimmy is just like a Google Home speaker or Amazon's Alexa. Her job for the company is to listen to the recordings from the device in which a conversation with a customer has gone badly and determine what's gone wrong. Now, why didn't the person using the device get the answer they were after? She has that question. She then goes and identifies the problem and closes the case. This is an actual job that exists, but I don't think there's that many people in the world who are actually doing that IRL who are also living in very large warehouse apartments in San Francisco. <laughs> Movies. So one day the Kravitz character, Angela, she hears something strange on a recording. It's a murder. And when she reports that she has a sensitive recording to her employers, they start reacting badly. What has Angela stumbled onto? The gimmick of Kimmy is that Angela has psychological trauma stemming from a sexual assault she once experienced, and she now has difficulty leaving her home. To go into the offices of her employer to deliver them the recording takes all of her strength, and that's before she's confronted by an employer who's clearly up to something and the heavies who are dispatched to silence her. This is a fun, tight 89-minute suspenseful thriller. Kravitz makes her a really appealing lead, and she's surrounded by a really unexpected cast, ranging from known actors like Risa Wilson and Robin Givens, to familiar faces like Devin Ratray, yeah, that's right, the guy that played Buzz in Home Alone, and then there's also some really out-of-the-box unusual choices, like comedians Andy Daly and David Wayne, and then there's also a major role for theatrical magician Derek Delgadio, playing the CEO of the company. Soderbergh is in crowd-pleaser mode with this one and has delivered an efficient, sophisticated thriller which really builds nicely to a fun, cathartic final act. It's no surprise to realise that, that the author of the screenplay was David Kep, the writer-director of so many memorable Hollywood thrillers from the 90s and early 2000s, with films like Panic Room, Mission Impossible, Jurassic Park, Toy Soldiers, and so many more under his belt. I had a blast watching Kimmy, so much so that I actually watched it twice during the week, I genuinely miss this kind of movie, smart adult thrillers. It's a genuinely bizarre notion to me that we don't see more of this kind of film being made, especially in this era of streaming services, and hopefully Kimmy changes that. Yep, 100% agree. This was a blast to watch Soderbergh at his most freewheeling and his most creative, and it's all in the service of, uh, I guess, a rear window style um, structure, but it's made very modern and very believable. I think Soderbergh is, uh, has done some of his best work here. And um, you're right, I'd like to see this sort of stuff uh, back in cinemas uh, or more of it on the streaming platforms. And maybe if directors like Soderbergh, uh, of the stature of Soderbergh, sort of re-embrace this, kind of, this kind of storytelling, um, we'll see that. So yeah, terrific film. Absolutely recommend it. You mentioned Rear Window, and look, that's the obvious point of comparison. But yeah. the thing that I kept on thinking about was, I can't, I don't actually know the name of the movie. There's an Audrey Hepburn movie where she plays a blind woman that's dealing yeah, with... Yeah, Wait Until Dark. Wait Until Dark, yeah. 
Like, yeah. to me, that's kind of what this film is. It's a woman who is so um, stunted physically. I mean, this is really Homebound, psychological yeah. trauma, but it stops her from really being able to engage and be her real physical self out in the world because she is so psychologically just tormented by the events that had happened to her. And it feels very much like she's facing those same limitations that Audrey Hepburn felt in that film. Yes, speaking of terrific thrillers, um, I got to see the new Netflix horror movie Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So Harlow is a ghost town. We have a vision for this place. All it needs is young blood. I don't want to live here. This is a chance for people to start fresh somewhere. Somewhere safe. Leatherface returns in what is being touted as the spiritual sequel to the late Toby Hooper's 1974 masterpiece. Don't do the math. If you do, that makes the chainsaw-wielding bad guy a very spry 70 or thereabouts. I did Given the some math the, the other mus- day and it's ridiculous. Go on. <laughs> Given some of the muscular action and, and physical dexterity he exhibits in offing the latest cast of annoying 20-somethings, life as a disgusting shut-in clearly has its perks. Um, the pot-smoking combi kids of the first film have been replaced by upwardly mobile idealistic millennials whose vision is to rejuvenate the decrepit ghost town of Harlow and turn it into the next Portland. Now Dante uh, played by Jacob Littlemore, his girlfriend Ruth, Nell Hudson and driven capitalist Melody, Sarah Yarkin have the plan. Melody's sister Lila, played by Elsie Fisher who I remember from a few years ago in the great film 8th grade, she's in the grip of PTSD having survived a school shooting she's along for the ride as well, that's a big mistake the group land in Harlow just ahead of a busload of douchey investors everyone obviously lining up to be blade fodder the horror kickstarts in the most 2022 kind of ways a dispute over title deed dante and melody claim ownership of a spooky crumbling house but find a dusty old broad played by alice creejay leaning into the scenery teeth first and her son you know who still in the premises things go bad storm clouds roll in nighttime descends you can see where this is going the Chainsaw Massacre films have never been at the cutting edge of social commentary, so bravo <laughs> <edge>. to this. <laughs> yeah, you see what I did there? So bravo to this latest version for a, a few swipes at the handheld device generation. No, it's the splatter that matters in the TCM films, and Leatherface 22 offers plenty of inventive dismembering. Key player here is a guy called Fetty Alvarez, who directed the awesome Evil Dead remake and the first Don't Breathe film, and here guides the gore as the producer. Slasher films count on outwardly intelligent people putting themselves in patently dangerous situations and Texas Chainsaw Massacre has more than its fair share of oh my god what an idiot moments that's part of the fun and for those of us who adore the saw there's lots of fun to be had here no mention of the narrator no, the narrator is one John Larroquette, who we know from years and years of sitcom television and who was the original narrator on the uh, Toby Hooper film yeah Oh, I thought that was nice Which is exciting. Yeah, it's, it is. It's good. Um, this one has bounced around the release schedule. It was a terribly troubled shoot. Um, the first two directors, a couple of brothers, were fired, and uh, David Garcia dropped in. And I know Fede Alvarez did some pickups and some some key shots as well. So uh, it's finally found its way to to Netflix. Don't listen to all the internet blather. Um, people take the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre very seriously. It was just a good old nasty romp, and so is this one. Okay, Simon, I think it's probably time for us to transition over to the middle bit. (coughs) We'll keep that cough in. Simon Foster. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of production mishaps this week. Uh, We're keeping them all in. 
just gonna yeah, chop, it's gonna chop make it. It's, it gives it a it gives it a realness it gives it a it, it grounds us with the fans here comes another one <coughs> oh excuse me oh, great it sounds like simon's dead with the covid <laughs> what are we talking about this week look okay so opening the um the uh, robe, the dressing gown that is this podcast and the excitement that happens within. Uh, Simon and I had this conversation during the week about what we're going to do for the middle bit and it was mm. based very much around the idea of I wanted to talk about video game movies and as soon as Simon heard that he did the immediate thing which is no, no video game movies. Everybody's heard that conversation <laughs> but I'm like yes Simon but I don't want to talk about the fact that Super Mario Brothers is a bad movie. We all know those are bad movies. We all yes. know that video game movies are generally bad. Has there been a good one i can't think of one off the top of my head but there's gotta be one maybe there's been a few lately lately there's been some werewolves within from last year was based on a a, a, a video movie and it's at 86 percent things like the angry bird movies in fact ryan reynolds in the the pikachu movie a couple of years ago was good fun as well so lately there's been some even last year's mortal Kombat i thought was all right but generally not so much yeah and so I was thinking about that, and I was also thinking about the fact that in the next couple of weeks' time, I'm going to be reviewing Halo, which is mm. coming soon, so Paramount Plus. Like, it seems as though these big sort of terrible attempts to mine IP from video games and tournaments and movies is now starting to happen on TV. So with that in mind, I just wanted to think about, like, why is it that we don't think that these movies work? Is there maybe a better form for them? Like, is TV going to be a better place for video game movies to exist? I mean, they won't be movies mm. anymore, but, you know, video game adaptations to exist. Like, how do we feel? Simon, like, obviously there was Uncharted this week, and that was a film that I think the cardinal sin that it committed was that they thought, this is a video game. We need to bring the mechanics of the video game to the movie. But the thing is that the mechanics of a video game are quite different to the mechanics of a movie. And what yep. works on screen in a movie needs to be a little bit more grounded in character. And I guess this is a problem I have with movies generally, which is that, especially in this sort of special effects driven era, so many of the special effects are fairly weightless. Like you don't really get a real sense of physicality in a lot of the motion that we're seeing on screen. And that yep. is particularly felt when you're dealing with a film like Uncharted, which is very much about run, jump, climb, twist knobs, twist keys. Like it just kind of feels as though there's no real weight. Like when they're twisting the key, you never really feel that his hand is on a key twisting it. It just kind of, it's no. background wallpaper, just screen nonsense. It never really quite feels legitimate. Yeah. And so to me, uh, like, this is sorry, it's not a good movie because it's really the things that are thrilling as a video game while you're mashing buttons trying to make that happen. That doesn't translate well to you sitting with a big box of popcorn in your hand, just like, um, gum, 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 while your mind well, is actively elsewhere. Okay, let, let me weigh in here because, yes, you're right. There's an inherent and what is appearing to be an increasingly insurmountable chasm between video games and movies where whether it's um, a first-person gamer uh, gaming sort of format or a platform gaming format where you've got to move through different phases to get to a, uh, uh, your goal, um, you have to add something to movies that games don't necessarily have, and that is a, a human interest element, a, a living person element um, that you are subtracted from that you are taken out of when you decide to play a video game. You are immediately put in the physical... Um, rush of having to get from one point to another point while avoiding this while capturing that while collecting coins all that sort of stuff um and that's all fun and exciting um and visceral when you're when you're playing a game but you need the added element of human involvement in cinema 
and char- and and the point you point out is character. Um, finding that in a straight adaptation of a video game is particularly tough. It's tough doing it in any script. There are plenty of movies not based on video games which don't have good character definition either. But to find a way of doing that in in uh, video game adaptations, pleasing both the movie watcher, i.e. me, and the game player, i.e. other people, um, is, is a really tough ask. And, I mean... I mentioned Werewolves Within. It did it by almost jettisoning, you know, just taking the adaptation of the the game in name only and and jettisoning jettisoning everything else, um, and and that really worked. But there hasn't been a lot else. Yeah. So look, I did a bit of reading up about Uncharted, the video game, because I hadn't really played it, and mm-hmm. so I was trying to work out like what the difference was between the movie and the video game, and. There's a quote here, and I just found it on Wikipedia, so I apologise if it's, you know, just a bit of Wikipedia nonsense and it's not that reflective. So if you know the games, I apologise. But there was a line here saying that series writer Amy Henning described Drake, the main character from Uncharted, as a gritty, charming mixture of actors like Harrison Ford and Bruce Willis, with additional influence coming from romantic action-adventure heroes like Cary Grant. And you think about that, and then you think about uh, the idea of... It's supposed to be about a character who's sort of a little bit quippy, and why not just make a movie like Die Hard with the Drake character who's going along actually feeling like an adult man and like just look at Die Hard as your template like don't necessarily look at the video game as your template because that video game is I- based but the video game is based on like this other sort of movie sensation like why not sort mm. of just take the story elements from Uncharted but then also take your execution from the movies that Uncharted so heavily rooted in like why not just embrace it that way well, then you're balancing. Then you're balancing one game. against. Then you're balancing one against the other. You're saying, okay, I'm going to take the the core appeal of what Uncharted was, and that's the character of Drake, and to a certain extent, the character of Sully, and yeah. I'm going to totally remove them from the format in which they became popular, the gaming format. Well, I mean, that, and you're doing that the, anyway because so, you're making an adaptation to a movie. Yeah, but but they're still following a certain platform structure that the game followed. It, 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 the only reason these studios make these these video game ad- adaptations is to tap into a certain extent to the gaming market to try to get some of those people who played the games to come along to the movies. If you what? take the character, can, put can it into I a diehard setting, hey, no, sorry, no, no. Let's finish your thought. And, if, and putting it into a die-hard setting or putting it into a setting that isn't the game, then the, the gamers aren't going to come along in, in any great number because you're not adapting the game, you're just using the characters. So this is, this is the t- you know, pull and push and shove that, that producers of, of video movies have to work with. They've got to try to create cinema um, and they've got to do it in a way that also honours the game fans and the game play. Um, and like I say, that's a, that's a huge chasm to leap. I mean, I think you can do that, though. So essentially, what you really need to do is identify two or three interesting set pieces from a video game and just, like, adapt them. Like, just take the location they're in, the idea, the intent of that, and then you apply it to movie logic and actually put a movie character into it. Whereas here, it just kind of felt like they were leaning too much on the gameplay mechanics and not enough thinking this actually needs to be a movie that stands on its own. And that's kind of where that falls apart and where so many of these other games fall apart. One of the things to, like... Obviously, talking about video games into movies is one thing, but we see the adaptations take place with other media into other media all the time. So if you think about the most dominant form of movies right now, it's comic book stuff. And if you took a comic book as it exists on the page and just like took that whole stock and just made a movie out of it, it doesn't work. 
comic books have inherently silly logic to them at times that requires like a comic page is generally we'll say six panels on a page sometimes more sometimes less but six panels on a page and you as a reader of the comic book needs to pick up that page and you're replacing so much more of filling in the gaps between panel to panel so that the story makes sense like you are bringing a lot of yourself here to make leaps of assumption and just follow logic through to make that story come alive on the page so when marvel have been successful in terms of making the many many movies i've made now well that's like 28 something like that the thing mm. i've been very successful with is taking elements from the comic books and making them make sense to a movie audience if you read a comic and then see the characters on the screen they're not really the same characters anymore like they have been adapted to make sense on the screen and so that just isn't happening in these video game adaptations uncharted's very guilty of this but i haven't seen that many video games that actually took the spirit of intent of the game and brought that to life on the screen and that's from recent things like now to obvious turkeys like super mario brothers or even i remember doom back in the day they took the visual aesthetic yeah. of the video game with first person moving through a whole bunch of rooms but it didn't really do anything mm. interesting with it outside of that you've you've raised a really interesting point in that adapting comics or books to the big screen has generally been successful and that leap from a person's imagination you know whether it's been reading a book or reading a comic book or a graphic novel we should call them um, books simon they're still books they, they they have to go there's there's a, a big leap to make it to the big screen to, to and there's a certain how much what am i trying to say here there's a certain leeway that can be given to filmmakers and directors and to stars to come along like you know robert downey jr is now iron man and chris evans is now captain america and and they're very legitimate personifications of these things that are conjured in our own minds when we read books when you're playing a game you are invested in the gameplay in the action um and it's it's a it's it's such a, a razor's edge that filmmakers have to walk to capture that sensation that game players have and the investment that game players physically put into playing a game and then ask a movie to achieve that as well. So I think it's a it's a unique modern movie making conundrum that Hollywood finds itself in. It's, they've got this you know these billion dollar properties like Uncharted, like Prince of Persia, like Final Fantasy, like Tomb Raider um, that are churning over billions of dollars but they're just proving so tough to turn into satisfying films. There's also the toxic nature of fandom and of the web and of how very quickly ill will can be generated for what can be very good films. Um, and, and can shut them down. So it's a, it's, a, it's a huge leap to make. There's also the other element you can go down um, when you take a property like Sonic the Hedgehog, use the technology to create a, a cartoon character, and then whack in there a big comic force like Jim Carrey to, to lift the film to another level. So you're taking the essential quality, bringing to it a, a star and his fans, and, and, and they did that with the uh, Pokemon Detective Pikachu film as well with Ryan Reynolds. So... Um, not impossible, but it's a it's a complex, complex world. Yeah, and so I guess the thing about things like Halo, which is coming soon, and the idea is, is TV a better mode for this? And like one of the things I'm very concerned about is I love the Red Dead Redemption games, and that's an old yep. West story. But so much of what I love about them is taking ideas that we've seen in movies and Western fiction, like Westerns fiction, uh, mm. as opposed to Western, the sphere of cultural emphasis. Anyway, oh uh, yeah. <laughs> 
real about getting to this. Like me so much of that is really just taking the various tropes and visual cues we sort of like and then placing it into an interactive environment being a video game. And that kind of, it, it feels kind of episodic in that you're roaming around like a big land and so you're getting into like episodic adventures around the place. So I'm wondering whether mm. or not the idea of a weekly story for Halo kind of allows it to you know, explore that world in a way that I just don't think you maybe can when you're trapped by a two-hour movie. In the way that I think Severance works better as a movie, but maybe these video games actually work better as TV series adaptations because you have that episodic element to it all. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, Well, we we can't end a discussion like this without weighing in on our favourite and least favourite comic book movies. Uh, Sorry, video game movies. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen one I like. (laughs) I can tell you what the worst one was. The worst one was, uh, gosh, what's the name of the game? It's a, oh gosh, what was it? Uh, what's the name of the director? Uh, David Bowie's kid. Uh, what's his name? Oh, Duncan Jones with Warcraft. 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 I left that movie 25 minutes in. I couldn't do no more. Ooh, burn, burn, burn. Okay. Yeah. So for me, there's been some good movies. And as you know, I'm not a gamer. So I can, I mean, and there's been some recent movies too. I quite liked Mila Jovovich's Monster Hunter last year. I quite liked last year's version of, of Mortal Kombat. Um, uh, I know, and you know, I've at the aforementioned, I even like this year's Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. Um, at the far end of things, you've got a collection of 90s movies that came out from German director Juve Boll, House of the Dead, Alone in the Dark, Blood Rain. These were all, you know, video game properties that Juve got the rights to and just churned out into to terrible, terrible films. Um, I would say probably my favourite film made out of video games Um and it's one that's finding a lot of reverse love at the moment. People are sort of coming back to it and realising it's not a bad little film. Is Silent Hill with Australian actress Rada Mitchell in there. I thought that was a legitimately scary sort of adaptation of a terrifying game. So there we go. I think what I've realised through this conversation is that I'm still yeah. hanging out for what will probably be the greatest video game adaptation of all time. And one that maybe cinema is just not powerful yet enough to really be able to fully bring to the screen, which is Leisure Suit Larry. <laughs> Simon, we like to wind out the podcast each and every week with a look at the week ahead. Simon Foster, do you want to kick us off? Uh, What have we got coming to... We've got a few movies still coming to cinemas. We haven't done that yet. Uh, Do you want to let us know what else is going to hit the big screen? I should mention that, yeah, there's a couple of of very sort of high-profile award season contenders coming to to cinemas this week. Uh, Flea, this is uh, an animated documentary. You don't see too many of those. Um, Armin is... uh, we learn his story. He comes as an unaccompanied minor to Denmark from Afghanistan. Now he's a 36-year-old, a very successful academic, um, and he's about to marry his longtime boyfriend. And he sits down with, with the filmmaker, and the, the dialogue they use in the film um, has been recorded during these sessions and turned into an animated discussion um, and talks about the, the harsh reality of his life as both a gay man in Afghanistan and as a refugee. It's called Flee, and it's in limited release at the moment, and this is a really powerful film. Also, 
also powerful is Kovada Aida. Um, Aida is a translator for the UN in uh, the small town of Srebrenica. Um, and when the Serbian army takes over the town, her family is among the thousands of citizens looking for shelter in the UN camp. And she's running back and forth between her UN duties, her family duties. This is a an, an anxiety-inducing film and a very sad one as well, but it's definitely worth seeing. And Joaquin Phoenix is back in cinemas with the Mike Mills movie Come On, Come On, um, beautifully shot in black and white. Um, it's really about the story between a man and his nephew and how they can uh, find some meaning to life together. Um, looking forward to seeing this one. Haven't seen it yet, but it's um, uh, Joaquin Phoenix was high on everyone's list of will he or won't he get nominated. He didn't, but um, it's probably worth seeing his film anyway. It's called Come On, Come On in limited release. So those are the movies that are on a big screen at the moment, but there's some movies coming this week to the smaller screen. What have we got ahead? Debuting on streaming this week, go to the Shudder Horror Channel for this terrific film called Hellbender, the story of a mother and a daughter who have uh, created music as their own heavy metal band called Hellbender, but she locks this girl into a life uh, high in the mountains and uh, the girl decides to get free and uh, horrific demonic kinds of things start to happen when she's unleashed upon the world. And over on the I Wonder platform is a, is a documentary called A Song Called Hate. This is the story of how Iceland's entry into the Eurovision Song Contest set out to use Tel Aviv's hosting of the 2019 event to draw attention to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and it's all about the opposition, the hostility and the intimidation that the band went through as part of the, the stance that they took with it's called A Song Called Hate, and it's on uh, the I Wonder doco platform from February 25. And there are a few movies and TV shows that are going to be dropping on services around the place. Uh, TV shows I want to mention is The Return of the Walking Dead. I think it's part two of season 11. And unless I'm mistaken, this season of The Walking Dead, which is the last of the OG Mothership Walking Dead show, is being split into three parts, which is the first time I remember seeing that happen. So... Uh, we've got that returning. That's probably the biggest title that we're going to see dropping this week. Uh, but then also there's the return of Last Week Tonight. There's the Season 5 return of Snowfall, which is a fairly popular little show that um, I've never bothered watching. Uh, there's, what else have we got here, Simon? There's Cold Courage, which is debuting on AMC+. And I don't know the show at all, so I'm going to read this blurb right now, which says, The show follows two Nordic women, a fierce psychologist who's fighting for the underdog, and a shy graphic artist who are on the run from an abusive stalker as they collide during a series of murders in present-day London. That sounds fun. That sounds interesting, yeah. Why yeah. wouldn't you watch that? Do we, how's that? What's the deal with AMC Plus? Is it doing okay in the Australian market? Is it making any inroads? Uh, who knows? I never hear anyone no. mention it, but I will say no. there's quite a few good shows on there. So Yeah, there really is. Yeah, if you're after some yeah, high-quality TV, give that a gander. Between that and Apple TV+, Plus, the two of them seems to be really just having a incredibly high batting average. Hmm, it's true. Yeah. It really is true. Um, for people in your part of the world, the Goma... Um, how do you say that? QA Goma? Is that what you call it up there no, in, in no Brisbane? No one calls it QA Goma. It's just Goma. It's the Gallery of Modern Art. I guess QA go. is what, like Queensland Arts? Gallery of Modern yeah. Art? Yeah. Something like it's that. Not like a QA. That's got, nonsense. <laughs> they've got an animation spotlight on at the moment focusing on the work of Adam Elliott. It screens daily until the 27th of February uh, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Um, he's our Academy Award winning animator. He won for Mary and Max back in 2009. Um, he's uh, one of our most renowned stop motion artists. Adam Elliott's a wonderful guy and an incredible creative force. In addition to Adam Elliott's work, they're showing some other animated films, shorts um, as part of their weekend programs, which I think you do have to pay for. But 
the Elliott season is is free from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day at the Qua Goma. Yeah. Uh, also, I just want to give people a bit of a heads up. There is season two of Space Force, which has debuted this weekend on Netflix. I haven't seen most of season one because I kind of thought the few episodes I had seen were kind of terrible. But they've done a bit of an overhaul on Space Force. And in the past where there's been Greg Daniel shows that haven't worked, uh, anytime he's done a bit of an overhaul, suddenly they start working dramatically well. So look at The Office and Parks and Recreation as two very good examples of that. So if you're a fan of those shows, maybe check out season two of Space Force because I think that might be one to check out. And then the other thing I just wanted to flag was that Law and Order is returning for season 21 after a gap of, I think it's been about seven or eight years that it hasn't been on. Wow. Yet. So they're bringing it back. So uh, Sam Waterston's back, uh, a couple of other like actors from throughout the series run have returned. There's a bunch of new actors who've joined the cast as well. But it's just old school Law and Order. Like you're not reinventing the wheel on this thing. It's gonna look and feel just like you expect Law and Order will debuts on Thursday evening in the US next week, well this coming week and the week ahead, we don't have an Australian release for this and I would think that Law and Order is a title lots of people would be very excited to see come back so it is strange to me that we haven't yet found where it's going to play locally so I guess maybe by the time that we're recording next week there'll be some sort of word as to when we might sit here in Australia but certainly something to watch out for because it's just one of those titles. Is Dick Wolf back in charge of this? Is his one of his oh, babies? Yeah. Because I know he, he stepped away from the SVU stuff and it, it kind of got very oh, yeah, silly towards some part there. There were some real turgid storylines along the way. But um, uh, hopefully... Look, I, I wouldn't look at... Warren, uh, sorry, I wouldn't look at Dick Wolf of having been like particularly hands-on involved in a lot of stuff for mm. maybe decades at this point. Bear in mind, I mean, Law and Order's been running since, what, like, 91? Yeah, about 1953, yeah. Yeah, 1953. They made Dragnet, <laughs> then two years later, Law and Order started. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, but like he's been, you know, he's had showrunners running his things for years. And so the guy that's been running SVU for some time has been Warren Leet. Warren Light, his name's pronounced. Uh, yeah, so I mean, that's the person you can sort of raise your hostility at. Uh, he's not running the new Law and Order version. I can't remember who the showrunner on this one is, but he's definitely overseeing. He'll take a meeting every week, I'm sure. And I know that Dick Wolf's been very keen to get this back on the air since the original one was cancelled by NBC many years back. Favourite Law and Order duo? Who are, your, who are the best cops? What was the best season? Oh, look, I mean, this is the thing with Law and Order where I've never really been a big Law and Order viewer. I've watched the occasional <gasps> wow, episode okay. here and there. And I appreciated it for what it was, but at a certain point, every show suddenly became Law and Order, and that kind of just turned me off. I wanted to you know, experience something. I, I remember the golden years. I remember, I remember Chris Noth in one of the roles. I remember the oh, the Benjamin Bratt and uh, Carrie Lull years. They were some of my favourite Law and Order series. All the while, um, you know, with Sam Waterson doing what Sam Waterson does best. So yeah, they were the they were the hardcore drama years. So I was a, a big fan of Angie Harmon, Jill Hennessy. Um, uh, yeah, what were the other ones? Yeah, there were some great. So you had yeah, Love Angie Harmon and Jill Hennessy. I know, I know. That was a, that's, they were a big deal. Must watch television. So we'll look out for that one. Do we put an audio yeah. sting in here? Uh, sure. <laughs> Simon, shall we celebrate the uh, anniversary dates that we've got here? This week in history is what we've branded it as. That's what the run Sure, let's is. do that. February 19, 2008, Toshiba announced the recall of its HD DVD video format, ending the format war and handing the crown to Sony's Blu-ray disc. All hail physical media. 
Ah, uh, look, Simon, I just moved house recently, and I will say the thing that was probably the biggest hindrance in my moving was the physical uh, media items that I still have loitering around my house. Yes, I know. Yeah, yeah it's tough. It's loads us all down. February 20. You February 20, 2015, Kristen Stewart became the first American actress to win a French Caesar Award as the best salad manufacturer of... Oh, no way, it was best supporting actress of Clouds of Sils Maria. Different Caesar. I got distracted. That's right. You did. February 22, 1934, Frank Capra's It Happened One Night with Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert premieres. It went on to win the Big Five Academy Awards, picture, director, actor, actress, and screenplay. Now, here's a bit of a trivia. 43 movies have been nominated for the Big Five in a single year. Only three have won all five of those categories. What are the other two? Mm, this has put you on the spot, hasn't it? Mr. I Know has, Everything um, About the Academy Awards. I'm not sure I've ever really purported that, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to think. Like, I kind of feel like Titanic, but I don't think that would have won for screenplay. No, nope, didn't win for screenplay, didn't won. win for actor. Leo didn't win for actor. Okay, that's fine. I'm okay with that. Uh, I mean, it wasn't Avatar, which is disappointing. And I'm trying no, to James Cameron movies now. Do, um, do you want the years? I'll give you the years. 75 yeah, and 90. Uh, sorry, 91. Uh, so that's probably uh, The Silence of the Lambs. That was the other one. That won the big five and 75. Uh, 76, I guess. When did those airport movies come out? Well, about then, but they didn't win it. Well, yeah, they did win an Oscar, actually. They did. I think they won a supporting for one of the ladies. <laughs> really? No, the other film was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, won the big five. They're the only two other movies. Silence of the Lambs and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. In addition to uh, It Happened One Night. So good for them. Yeah, uh, February 24, 1989. Stalker Margaret Ray was found in David Letterman's home. She claimed to be his wife. Spoiler alert, she was not. No, she was just some nut job who was found in his house. Uh, birthday sting. Sorry, I'm looking for the button. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. Simon could be not more pleased that that exists. February 19, I love 2004. That. Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things and that last Godzilla movie that was awful uh, was yeah, born was in Spain. Bad. Uh, Gail Gordon, who we all know from The Lucy Show, and here's Lucy, February 20, 1906. He died in 1995. A very funny comic actor. Yeah. Uh, Melanie Lawrence was born February 21, 1983. People would know her from Inglorious Bastards. And you can watch Simon's interview with Melanie over on our YouTube channel. And she was born in Paris. That's right. February 22, 1959, uh, Kyle McLaughlin, Blue Velvet, Dune, Twin Peaks. Who'll ever forget him in Twin Peaks? He was born in Yakima, Washington, and I've left this one just for you. Sorry, I switched screens. Uh, where are we at? Oh, no, I'm not doing this. Simon, I'm do it. Your monkey. Do it. No. Do it. Do it. it. Happy birthday, Josh Gad. <laughs> You're not a fan. February 23, 1981. He was good in Frozen. Sorry, I was playing a sting. I didn't really hear what you had to say. Let's do some trivia yeah, instead, know. Simon. If you're going to hit me with um, Oscars trivia, you mentioned two yeah. Lucy shows that Gal Gordon was in. What was the third one? Uh, what did I say they were? They were the Lucy show, Here's Lucy, and... Oh, Here's Lucy. This is good and podcasting. Sorry, I just People want to say, star, star dinner. 
starring role and not just a guest appearance. Oh, okay. No, I'm stumped. All Lucy shows. I do not know. And he he was J.K. Simmons in the movie recently, wasn't he? Was that him? That was no, no. Oh, okay. I'm all confused now. He was a writer. Um, okay, I, I don't know. What's the <laughs> other show? Okay, so. Uh, Gail Gordon, you mentioned that he was in the Lucy show and uh, what's it, the Lucy show and Here's Lucy. Um, Here's Lucy yep. being the show that I know her best from, which is not the common experience. Uh, he did make an appearance in I Love Lucy, but he was a regular performer oh, in... Well, yeah, but he made a guest appearance there, but he was a regular performer in Life with Lucy, which was the final Lucy show. Wow, I that don't think I ever saw Life with Lucy. Uh, I think it got cancelled after 13 episodes. Wow. Uh, but the... The gentleman you were thinking of from I Love Lucy that was played by J.K. Simmons was William Frawley. Ah, you're absolutely right. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that brings us to an end of a fairly hectic screen watching. Simon Foster, I think it's probably time that we get out of here on what I think has been the longest screenwriting to date. That's probably <laughs> not true. Yeah, it could be. It's been good, though. It's been fun. A lot of reviews, though. A lot of stuff to talk about this week. You do your sign-off. Yeah, all right. Uh, folks, thanks for listening to Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. You can start your day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching. That is located at, on the internet at alwaysbewatching.com. It has the big stories of TV, streaming, and film. And on Fridays, also on the internet, you've got the Always Be Streaming newsletter. It recounts the big shows that launched that very week. I'm on the Twitter at Simon R. Foster one My words are over at ScreenSpace, screen-space.net. The Screen Watching Facebook, fa- Facebook. Is Facebook page is full of all sorts of new trailers and content always being um, stocked up. You can see a lot of our videos from the YouTube channel. They're always shared to the Facebook page. Do go to the YouTube channel where you can see our interview with Sasha Hayden, the writer and director of uh, A Stitch in Time. Yeah, I think Simon's got his repository of OnlyFans videos that he has been distributing on that channel as well. So be sure to check that out. Uh, Meanwhile, if you like this podcast, follow Screen Watching via your favorite podcast app. Load it up now, hit the follow or subscribe button and let the podcast just keep on coming on in. Yeah, man, on in. Thank you, mate. Always a joy. Okay, it's been a pleasure. We've got no outro theme, so let's dance. Simon, it's been a pleasure. Let's get out of here.